Thanks, John. Great to have you, Barb, here with us each week. Um, Great to have you bringing us our reading this morning. Hey, um, let's pray again and and we'll see what we can mine out of this psalm uh, that John has has just read to us this morning. Loving Father, as we look into your word uh, this morning, with the the Spirit just enliven our hearts to its truth and warm our hearts with affection for you and cause us just to marvel and worship Jesus who all Scripture speaks of and points to for your glory and for our deep joy. That's because uh, Jesus is and has been all that Scripture has pointed to for us, that we can pray in His name, that we can approach you in His grace. So we just pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, as John said, this is the last of our Psalms in our Summer Psalms series. And I've really enjoyed just kind of fossicking around in the Psalms. Uh, again, they're a rich, a real rich mine of resource for the soul. Uh, I, I, last week's psalm certainly was a challenge to the environment and the practice of our souls. And again, this psalm, Psalm 22, uh, is a very challenging psalm. Uh, I'm sure as John read through it, you felt the emotion uh, of this psalm, of the content of this psalm. And, and, and John's right, this psalm is moving, you know, contrasting backwards and forwards. Uh, throughout throughout the writing of it. I don't want to um, kind of assume in any way to have mastered uh, the content, but rather just hope to open it up a little bit this morning and, and so with the co- hope that we can marvel uh, at, the, at the story of God and his, and his plan for salvation for us. Well, this psalm that uh, John has read is probably most recognisable because uh, its opening lines were actually quoted by Jesus on the cross. And they've been recorded for us in Mark's Gospel in Mark 15 and, and Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 27. And Tim Keller notes, and this is what Josh was painting for us in that first week when he was preaching uh, in week one, that when a teacher, when a, when a rabbi wants to reference a body of work in Scripture, they just they quote the opening lines. And in doing so, they basically let people know, everybody know, that, that, is, that that's what they're going to be speaking about, that everything from here on in relates to this portion of Scripture, that the opening line that they've just quoted. Well, in quoting the opening line of Psalm 22, Jesus is saying, I am what this psalm pointed to, what you're witnessing here. I am what it longed for, of the rescue from overwhelming evil, desolation and and, and provision of a song of salvation. This psalm spoke of what I am now here to do and are doing. Something that you could not do, something indescribable in this psalm that that you could not do for yourselves. This psalm is originally attributed to the pen of King David. And indeed, David wrote nearly half of our psalms that we have. Uh, Wrote them for our benefit that they're all compiled as 150 psalms. I think David wrote 73, 73 and a half, maybe 74 of these psalms. So it wouldn't have been an uncommon sight to see uh, King of Israel, David, heading into the recording studios out the back of the temple to workshop a new song that he'd just written. And it wouldn't have been, and it would have been a great delight. You know, the worship team would have been there uh, for them to be able to see David come in and go, oh, great, now, now we're going to work on a new song. Find out the best way to convey the mood and the message of the song that God had placed on his heart to lead Israel in worship with, uh, to maintain the presence of God amongst his people with, to shape their theology and their practice in life. As Trevor Joy described, 
And we read that out last week. I'll give it to you again. That they were to give them words to say and to teach them how to pray by bringing every thought and every emotion in the human experience into the context of God's story. Through these psalms, their hearts, our hearts, whether broken or bursting, become aligned with God's heart. These psalms were given by God to help lead our thinking and their thinking and our feeling Godward. That wherever we are in life, whatever befalls us, whether pleasure or pain, the words that come from God become the steps by which we find God. And it would have been the task of the choir master to take the words from God through the pen of David and lead Israel in worship with them. Bring bring them into the presence of God, before God, uh, by describing this situation and and putting it in the context of God's story with them. We kind of do a similar thing here when someone comes with a new song they have found and they think, oh yeah, this will work at Freeway. We check out the lyrics. Uh, Do they make much of Jesus? Uh, Does it sit well with scripture? Is it congregationally friendly? Like, can you people actually sing this song or do you have to be Marita Marita Franklin or something or other? I don't know why she popped into my head. Um, Yeah. So I can imagine the choir master reading over this psalm, looking up at David, rereading it. You sure about this one, David? I mean, this is not your usual lament and praise. This is not, oh, I'm surrounded by an army, overwhelming circumstances. Ah, but God, God of Israel, my rock, my fortress has lifted me, rescued me. This, this psalm is the dehumanizing and brutal public execution of a just and righteous man whose deliverance after his suffering and affliction become the basis of praise. I'm not sure if this is going to trend too well, David. I don't know how many downloads we're going to get for this one. I don't know how we're going to use this psalm. I don't know too many righteous and just men who end up friendless, despised, discarded and executed. The righteous are normally blessed and honoured, not put to death by a powerful alliance of evildoers. Indeed, it is hard to imagine just how this psalm fits into the worship life of Israel. And I must admit, I I don't know how this psalm of this brutal suffering of a just and righteous man, uh, a subsequent deliverance became a part of Israel's sacred liturgy. Maybe on the basis that this psalm conveys that only God can deliver from this kind of desolation. But I know how this song of desolation became an anthem of deliverance, a message of love and grace when it was sung by Jesus on the cross. This psalm is what commentators, theologians, these types of people call a messianic psalm. It has prophetic application and description to the work of the Messiah. It references what Jesus would do and has done. And I think David presented this psalm as not being merely about him or anyone in his time, David certainly encountered some hardship, but nothing like the scope that's described in this psalm. And, and David also led worship and gave praise to God in the temple after his deliverance from that hard, hardship, but not to the extent that's pictured in this psalm, particularly in verses 27 and onward. There is a context of this psalm where David is saying, I am a limited king. All that I do for you is limited, but a king is coming whose kingship 
belongs to the Lord and he will rule over the nations and his reign will bring praise from all people toward God. This king, unlike me, is a righteous king, a good king, but he is going to suffer. When you see a righteous, good man suffering injustice at the hands of evildoers, this is how God plans to turn all the ends of the earth back to him. I think this psalm is saying, wait for the signs of this promise. Wait for such an unthinkable moment. Then, then in, the, in the greatest darkness, then you can know God is actually at work. This psalm is prophetic in its composition. Nevertheless, as we said, perhaps for those who sang it, they were encouraged to stay faithful in their hearts to what they knew of God. Even when their circumstances, external and internal, screamed abandonment. Faith like that will break out in praise, like the rays of the dawn that pierce the darkest night. When God, not your circumstances, have the last word. There is nothing that God cannot rescue from. Not even an unimaginable, hopeless situation like this one. Faith like that will encourage those around you. Faith like that will uh, turn people's praise towards God. I wish I had better words, uh, but that's what I've got at the moment as I try to sum up and describe uh, how, how this in psalm is written. But perhaps the words of Peter in 1 Peter uh, 1, 10 to 12 explain how the New Testament writers understood Scripture like this psalm, Psalm 22, in the light of what Jesus had done. David, they say, operating as a prophet, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, wrote about how it was that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham to bring about the salvation of all people, of all nations, of all ethnicities, when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter sees the two halves of this psalm as looking forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus as God's plan of salvation, as of God's way of fulfilling the promises to Abraham that would lead to the salvation of all nations. So the Spirit of Christ through David brings this psalm to say, here is a description of event and execution and subsequent glory. When you see it, no God is saving the world. What's extraordinary is that the incarnate Jesus who quotes this psalm on the cross was present at this psalm's composition. John tells us that Jesus is the eternal word who became flesh. We read that at the start of his gospel. And Jesus himself says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. He helped pen this psalm into the heart of David. That's what Peter means. The spirit of Christ authors through the prophets. Can you imagine Jesus who says to the teachers of the law in John 5, all scripture points to me. All scripture is about me. Can you imagine him reading through this psalm, contemplating what this psalm meant for him as he got underway in his ministry and his life? The psalm is an inc- incredible in its accuracy at describing death by crucifixion. And even though David lived some thousand years before the Romans would def- design this method of death, verses 6 to 18 vividly uh, describe the physical torture, the mental suffering, the emotional and social humiliation and the spiritual desolation of the cross. 
something that the gospel writers cannot bring themselves to describe fully. The gospel writers only describe the setting of the cross and, and those who watched on and mocked Jesus. They describe the setting in which and the environment and experience that would cause anyone to feel as though they were a worm, as though they were less than human. And David, a thousand years in advance, even describes the activities of the executioners vying for this dying man's clothes. And and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel records that the soldiers, they cast lots for the clothes of Jesus as it was taking place. David Pawson remarks, How can anyone question the supernatural and divine inspiration of Scripture? What else can explain David's psalm and the crucifixion of Jesus? One of the things that this psalm speaks to is the plan of salvation that God was revealing from the moment that he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden till the moment they stripped his son of his clothes on a hill. Salvation of sinners. That God is saving sinful people. As verse 25 to 31 reveal, He is saving all kind, all manner of sinful people. The rich, the poor, the afflicted, those from every ethnicity. Saving them from their own spiritual desolations. Saving them from their own spiritually dead souls. To, to transform them into worship and service of God. That is the golden thread that runs through Scripture. And Jesus is the one that it clothes with praise. (coughs) On the cross, we see Jesus experience physical torture. A crucifixion is designed to maximize this experience. Nails through the hands and feet are hardly a life-threatening, but they hold you in place to endure a death by disintegration, as described in Psalm 22. Have you ever felt like that? That you are disintegrating towards death and there is nothing you can do to stop it? This psalm says that that is an experience that God himself understands. That God can comfort you in that space. And not merely that. That because this disintegration was not the end of him, neither will it be the end of your story. On the cross, Jesus experienced mental suffering, uh, emotional and social humiliation. The nails that that ensured death was slow also ensured that the death was public and personal. The judgment made by civil authorities was now in the hands and on display in front of the public. And they pile in, mocking and questioning Jesus about the most precious um, aspect and element of his life. The most precious treasure that he has. And that's the nature of his relationship with the Father, with God. He trusts in the Lord. Let him, let God deliver him. Let him, let God rescue him. For if God delights in him... Surely if Jesus is this just and righteous man that he claims, if he is the Son of God, well, what's he doing on this cross? Surely God would not allow this to happen. And they judge Jesus on his circumstances and not on his faith and not on his claims. The two of these things are incongruous to their minds. Religious people don't, uh, righteous people don't suffer. Messiahs don't die. The idea that God would suffer... And be humiliated? You, Jesus, are a liar, not a saviour. And the fact that you're stuck on that cross is proof 
You are not who you claim to be. You are not the son of God. You are actually abandoned by God. Have you ever felt like that? Judged by people based on your circumstances and not the quality, not the relationship of your faith. Have you ever had people tell you that there's something wrong with you? Something, there's something incompatible with the faith that you claim and the situation that you find yourself in? Oh, man, I tell you, I just want to punch people like that in the throat. Fortunately, Jesus is working on me so that that doesn't happen. That's not in my sermon. I just. Uh. Have you ever had a pack of dogs, a pack of evildoers, lions, bulls, tear away at your character, question the veracity of your faith so that you feel like a worm? You question every thought in your life. This psalm says that God has been in that space and that he understands how that can make you feel. Feel alone, feel abandoned. And because he was alone in that space, you are now not. You have a God who has experienced life at every level that you could possibly imagine. That's what Hebrews is telling us. On the cross, Jesus experienced extreme spiritual pressure. Now, that's a phrase that's far too weak for what Jesus was going through. It's almost insulting to use it. But I haven't worked out how to describe the spiritual desolation of the cross and keep uh, uh, the, the relationship of the Trinity intact. The Godhead is not torn apart on the cross, but the nature of the relationship is somehow disrupted, somehow changed, so that Jesus, who has only ever known the perfect enjoyment of relationship with the Father, is now searching for God, is now, is now searching for God in prayer and cannot find Him. God is silent. It's one of the mysteries of the cross. For Jesus, this experience of the cross is far worse than the beatings, the nails, the mocking. And we have never known this. We can never say, I have felt a similar experience, not even by degree, to the cry of forsakenness from Jesus on the cross. Because we are not like Jesus, who can literally say the words from verses 9 to 10. From my mother's womb, from my birth, all the way through infancy, even up to this moment, you have been my God. I have never known a time when I was not in relationship with you. You see, Jesus is a righteous man that he claims to be. He has never had sin separate him from God. God has been his eternal delight and he God's eternal delight. And God does delight in the Son. This is the eternal reality. But now silence. We all come into relationship and fellowship with God at some point in our lives. At some point in our lives, God breaks into our spiritual desolation, warms our hearts with affection for Him. We are all part of the ends of the earth that have trusted and in turn to the Lord. We didn't begin in that space like Jesus. Jesus is the one person in all humanity who should not experience the absence of God's presence and power. You know, God's divine rescue has been the song of Israel, the cornerstone of their praise they enthroned him on. Israel's ancestors trusted God and he rescued them and he delivered them. And they were nowhere near as as righteous and as good as Jesus 
Why is God forsaking Jesus? Why is God so far from saving this righteous and innocent man? And the only answer that can be found is for you and for me. Only the righteous can pardon the unrighteous. Only the righteous can exchange their lives for ours, for the unrighteous. On the cross, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus faces an environment, a feeling of absence of fellowship with the Father. On the cross, not only does Jesus deal with the physical death that sin brings uh, into our experience and world, Jesus felt the spiritual desolation that sin brings. And I'd be lying again if I said I could describe this or, or try to contain it in words or some kind of nice, nifty little theological explanation, but all I know is God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is the great exchange so that I could be one of the coming generations to proclaim his righteousness, to be one of the families and the nations of the earth yet unborn, to say he has done it and to be able to apply the work of the cross to my life so that I would be able to give praise and worship that's like eating and being satisfied. On the cross, Jesus asks a question that only believers can ask. Why do I feel the absence of God? And with the faith that only believers can ask it, my God, my God, oh my God. Three times in the opening verses, Jesus calls God his personal Father, Abba, Father. The cross was not a crisis of faith for Christ. It was a place where his faith was all that he had left. Never doubting that God, in his good, that God is his good Father, despite the desolating circumstances, despite the judgment of the world, the absence of fellowship, God could still be trusted in a landscape that only God can rescue and save him. You know, if you can ask this question, not where is God, but where has he gone? At some point he has come into your life, but now he's gone. Now he feels absent. That is the presence of faith in the absence of fellowship. That is trusting and longing in the goodness of God, in the wickedness of the world. You have come to a place where only God will satisfy. You have a heart that has God as your highest treasure. You wait for the dawn of light to warm your soul. You have not been abandoned. We have a God who has even walked through this dark night of the soul. No other religion, no other message moves towards humanity, humanity like this. With its God choosing to serve his people through suffering. A God who himself pays for the sin that separates us from him. That keeps us out of relationship with him. No God is either too holy to get involved and asks us to become good enough for him to approach, a moralistic God, or God just saves everybody, a costless salvation with no value to it, no justice in it. Neither a moralistic God or a relativistic God fills us with the praise and the joy and the confidence and the security that we find in this psalm, towards the end of this psalm. Only a God of grace can fill us like that, can cause that kind of praise to rise up in us. 
The whole psalm turns at verse 21 when it seems that the dawn has come into the dark night. God has rescued. Despite all the appearances and judgments, God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has answered him when he cried out to him. On the contrary to what people said, God cares for the broken and the distressed. Listen, suffering is not his loss of pleasure in you, but his means of bringing you to deeper grace, to a place where only God can rescue, only God can comfort you, only God will do in that space. And God listens to that feeling of outcast, of marginalization. Indeed, God has not despised the afflicted, but rather God has vindicated and lifted him up. That Jesus rose from the grave means that God is pleased with the Son. That the cross, though it was a place of desolation and appeared to be a place of abandonment, was the place where God could be both holy and loving. The place where our sin was dealt with in a way that satisfied a holy God and demonstrated his love to us. A place that didn't crush us but but would lift us up. Jesus sang the first half of this psalm so we could sing the second half of this psalm. Jesus was torn apart so we could be made whole. Jesus was abandoned so we could be reconciled. He was humiliated so we could be lifted up. He tasted death that we might taste life. He was delivered from desolation so that we would be redeemed to have hearts that live forevermore. The message of Psalm 22, the message of the cross, is that salvation is by grace alone. Only God can rescue from the grave. Only God has done all that needed to be done to free us from the spiritual desolation of our hearts. And may that live in us forever. May we praise God together forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for these psalms, for this one, uh, as we've been working through them for the month of January. We pray that we would continue to um, nurture their content, their message into our hearts and into our lives, that it would shape our practice, that it would shape our understanding of who you are and how you move uh, toward us, that it would give us a great confidence that right out of the gate you have had a plan of salvation to bring unworthy, uh, desolate people into a place of of, of worship and praise and an eternal relationship with you. We thank you that you're a God that doesn't ask us to do anything uh, to get this, but that you move toward us. And we see that most profoundly in the cross and all that Jesus has done for us. Would that become... An even greater reality in our lives more and more every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.